Chapter Thirteen of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Thirteen. Miriam again bound and under heavy guard in Kovudu's own hut saw the night pass and the new day come without bringing the momentarily looked-for return of Korak. She had no doubt but that he would come back, and less still that he would easily free her from her captivity. To her Korak was little short of omnipotent. He embodied for her all that was finest and strongest and best in her savage world. She gloried in his prowess, and worshipped him for the tender thoughtfulness that always had marked his treatment of her. No other within the ken of her memory had ever accorded her the love and gentleness that was his daily offering to her. Most of the gentler attributes of his early childhood had long since been forgotten in the fierce battle for existence which the customs of the mysterious jungle had forced upon him. He was more often savage and bloodthirsty than tender and kindly. His other friends of the wild looked for no gentle tokens of his affection. That he would hunt with them and fight for them was sufficient. If he growled and showed his fighting fangs when they trespassed upon his inalienable rights to the fruits of his kills, they felt no anger toward him, only greater respect for the efficient and the fit, for him who could not only kill but protect the flesh of his kill. But toward Miriam he always had shown more of his human side. He killed primarily for her. It was to the feet of Miriam that he brought the fruits of his labors. It was for Miriam more than for himself that he squatted beside his flesh and growled ominously at whosoever dared sniff too closely to it. When he was cold in the dark days of rain, or thirsty in a prolonged drought, his discomfort engendered first of all thoughts of Miriam's welfare. After she had been made warm, after her thirst had been slaked, then he turned to the affair of ministering to his own wants. The softest skins fell gracefully from the graceful shoulders of his Miriam. The sweetest scented grasses lined her bower, where other soft furry pelts made hers the downiest couch in all the jungle. What wonder, then, that Miriam loved her Korak? but she loved him as a little sister might love a big brother who was very good to her. As yet she knew not the love of a maid for a man. So now, as she lay waiting for him, she dreamed of him, and of all that he meant to her. She compared him with the sheik, her father, and at thought of the stern, grizzled old Arab she shuddered. Even the savage blacks had been less harsh to her than he— not understanding their tongue, she could not guess what purpose they had in keeping her a prisoner. She knew that man ate man, and she expected to be eaten, but she had been with them for some time now, and no harm had befallen her. She did not know that a runner had been dispatched to the distant village of the sheik to barter with him for a ransom. She did not know, nor did Kovudu, that the runner had never reached his destination that he had fallen in with the safari of Jensen and Malbin, and with the talkativeness of a native to other natives, had unfolded his whole mission to the black servants of the two Swedes. These had not been long in retailing the matter to their masters, and the result was that when the runner left their camp to continue his journey, 
he had scarce passed from sight before there came the report of a rifle, and he rolled lifeless into the underbrush with a bullet in his back. A few moments later Malbin strolled back into the encampment, where he went to some pains to let it be known that he had had a shot at a fine buck and missed. The Swedes knew that their men hated them, and that an overt act against Kovudu would quickly be carried to the chief at the first opportunity. Nor were they sufficiently strong in either guns or loyal followers to risk antagonizing the wily old chief. Following this episode came the encounter with the baboons and the strange white savage who had allied himself with the beasts against the humans. Only by dint of masterful maneuvering and the expenditure of much power had the Swedes been able to repulse the infuriated apes, and even for hours afterward their camp was constantly besieged by hundreds of snarling, screaming devils. The Swedes, rifles in hand, repelled numerous savage charges which lacked only efficient leadership to have rendered them as effective in results as they were terrifying in appearance. Time and time again the two men thought they saw the smooth-skinned body of the wild ape-man moving among the baboons in the forest, and the belief that he might head a charge upon them proved most disquieting. They would have given much for a clean shot at him for to him they attributed the loss of their specimen and the ugly attitude of the baboons toward them. "'The fellow must be the same we fired on several years ago,' said Malbin. "'That time he was accompanied by a gorilla. Did you get a good look at him, Carl?' "'Yes,' replied Jensen. "'He was not five paces from me when I fired at him. He appeared to be an intelligent-looking European.' and not much more than a lad. There is nothing of the imbecile or degenerate in his features or expression, as is usually true in similar cases, where some lunatic escapes into the woods and by living in filth and nakedness wins the title of wild man among the peasants of the neighborhood. No, this fellow is of different stuff, and so infinitely more to be feared. As much as I should like a shot at him, I hope he stays away. Should he ever deliberately lead a charge against us, I wouldn't give much for our chances if we happened to fail to bag him at the first rush. But the white giant did not appear again to lead the baboons against them and finally the angry brutes themselves wandered off into the jungle, leaving the frightened safari in peace. The next day the Swedes set out for Kovudu's village, bent on securing possession of the person of the white girl, whom Kovudu's runner had told them lay captive in the chief's village. How they were to accomplish their end they did not know. Force was out of the question, though they would not have hesitated to use it had they possessed it. In former years they had marched roughshod over enormous areas, taking toll by brute force, even when kindliness or diplomacy would have accomplished more. But now they were in bad straits, so bad that they had shown their true colors scarce twice in a year, and then only when they came upon an isolated village, weak in numbers and poor in courage. Kovudu was not as these, and though his village was in a way remote from the more populous district to the north, 
His power was such that he maintained an acknowledged suzerainty over the thin thread of villages which connected him with the savage lords to the north. To have antagonized him would have spelled ruin for the Swedes. It would have meant that they might never reach civilization by the northern route. To the west the village of the Sheik lay directly in their path, barring them effectually. To the east the trail was unknown to them, and to the south there was no trail. So the two Swedes approached the village of Kovudu with friendly words upon their tongues and deep craft in their hearts. Their plans were well made. There was no mention of the white prisoner. They chose to pretend that they were not aware that Kovudu had a white prisoner. They exchanged gifts with the old chief, haggling with his plenipotentiaries over the value of what they were to receive for what they gave as is customary and proper when one has no ulterior motives. Unwarranted generosity would have aroused suspicion. During the palaver which followed they retailed the gossip of the villages through which they had passed, receiving in exchange such news as Kovudu possessed. The palaver was long and tiresome, as these native ceremonies always are to Europeans. Kovudu made no mention of his prisoner, and from his generous offers of guides and presents seemed anxious to assure himself of the speedy departure of his guests. It was Malbin who, quite casually, near the close of their talk, mentioned the fact that the sheik was dead. Kovudu evinced interest and surprise. "'You did not know it?' asked Malbin. "'That is strange. It was during the last moon.' He fell from his horse when the beast stepped in a hole. The horse fell upon him. When his men came up, the sheik was dead. Kovudu scratched his head. He was much disappointed. No sheik meant no ransom for the white girl. Now she was worthless, unless he utilized her for a feast or a mate. The latter thought aroused him. He spat at a small beetle crawling through the dust before him. He eyed Malbin appraisingly. These white men were peculiar. They traveled far from their own villages without women. Yet he knew they cared for women. But how much did they care for them? That was the question that disturbed Kovudu. "'I know where there is a white girl,' he said unexpectedly. "'If you wish to buy her, she may be had cheap.' Malbin shrugged. "'We have troubles enough, Kovudu,' he said without burdening ourselves with an old she-hyena, and as for paying for one, Malbin snapped his fingers in derision. She is young, said Kovudu, and good-looking. The Swedes laughed. There are no good-looking white women in the jungle, Kovudu, said Jensen. You should be ashamed to try to make fun of old friends. Kovudu sprang to his feet. "'Come,' he said. "'I will show you that she is all I say.' Malbin and Jensen rose to follow him, and as they did so their eyes met, and Malbin slowly drooped one of his lids in a sly wink. Together they followed Kovudu toward his hut. In the dim interior they discerned the figure of a woman lying bound upon a sleeping mat. Malbin took a single glance and turned away. She must be a thousand years old, Kovudu, he said as he left the hut. She is young, cried the savage. 
It is dark in here. You cannot see. Wait, I will have her brought out into the sunlight. And he commanded the two warriors who watched the girl to cut the bonds from her ankles and lead her forth for inspection. Malbin and Jensen evinced no eagerness, though both were fairly bursting with it, not to see the girl but to obtain possession of her. They cared not if she had the face of a marmoset or the figure of a pot-bellied Kovudu himself. All that they wished to know was that she was the girl who had been stolen from the sheik several years before. They thought that they would recognize her for such if she was indeed the same. But even so, the testimony of the runner Kovudu had sent to the sheik was such as to assure them that the girl was the one they had once before attempted to abduct. As Miriam was brought forth from the darkness of the hut's interior, the two men turned with every appearance of disinterestedness to glance at her. It was with difficulty that Malbin suppressed an ejaculation of astonishment. The girl's beauty fairly took his breath from him, but instantly he recovered his poise and turned to Kovudu. Well, he said to the old chief. Is she not both young and good-looking? asked Kovudu. She is not old, replied Malbin. But even so she will be a burden. We did not come from the north after wives. There are more than enough there for us. Miriam stood looking straight at the white men. She expected nothing from them. They were to her as much enemies as the black men. She hated and feared them all. Malbin spoke to her in Arabic. We are friends, he said. Would you like to have us take you away from here? Slowly and dimly, as though from a great distance, recollection of the once familiar tongue returned to her. I should like to go free, she said, and go back to Korak. You would like to go with us? persisted Malbin. No, said Miriam. Malbin turned to Kovudu. She does not wish to go with us, he said. You are men, returned the black. Can you not take her by force? It would only add to our troubles, replied the Swede. No, Kovudu, we do not wish her. Though if you wish to be rid of her, we will take her away because of our friendship for you. Now Kovudu knew that he had made a sale. They wanted her, so he commenced to bargain, and in the end the person of Miriam passed from the possession of the black chieftain into that of the two Swedes in consideration of six yards of American, three empty brass cartridge shells, and a shiny new jackknife from New Jersey and all but Miriam were more than pleased with the bargain. Kovudu stipulated but a single condition, and that was that the Europeans were to leave his village and take the girl with them as early the next morning as they could get started. After the sale was consummated, he did not hesitate to explain his reasons for this demand. He told them of the strenuous attempt of the girl's savage mate to rescue her, and suggested that the sooner they got her out of the country, the more likely they were to retain possession of her. Miriam was again bound and placed under guard, but this time in the tent of the Swedes. Malbin talked to her, trying to persuade her to accompany them willingly. He told her that they would return her to her own village, but when he discovered that she would rather die than go back to the old sheik, he assured her that they would not take her there 
nor, as a matter of fact, had they had an intention of so doing. As he talked with the girl, the Swede feasted his eyes upon the beautiful lines of her face and figure. She had grown tall and straight and slender toward maturity since he had seen her in the sheik's village on that long-gone day. For years she had represented to him a certain fabulous reward. In his thoughts she had been but the personification of the pleasures and luxuries that many francs would purchase. Now, as she stood before him, pulsing with life and loveliness, she suggested other seductive and alluring possibilities. He came closer to her and laid his hand upon her. The girl shrank from him. He seized her, and she struck him heavily in the mouth as he sought to kiss her. Then Jensen entered the tent. Malbin, he almost shouted. You fool! Sven Malbin released his hold upon the girl and turned toward his companion. His face was red with mortification. What the devil are you trying to do? growled Jensen. Would you throw away every chance for the reward? If we maltreat her, we not only couldn't collect a sou, but they'd send us to prison for our pains. I thought you had more sense, Malbin. I'm not a wooden man, growled Malbin. You'd better be, rejoined Jensen. At least until we have delivered her over in safety and collected what will be coming to us. Oh, hell, cried Malbin. What's the use? They'll be glad enough to have her back, and by the time we get there with her, she'll only be too glad to keep her mouth shut. Fine not. Because I say not, growled Jensen. I've always let you boss things, Sven, but here's a case where what I say has got to go, because I'm right and you're wrong, and we both know it. "'You're getting damned virtuous all of a sudden,' growled Malbin. "'Perhaps you think I have forgotten about the innkeeper's daughter "'and little Salila and that nigger at—' "'Shut up!' snapped Jensen. "'It's not a matter of virtue, and you are as well aware of that as I. "'I don't want to quarrel with you, but so help me God, Van, you're not going to harm this girl if I have to kill you to prevent it. I've suffered and slaved and been nearly killed forty times in the last nine or ten year, trying to accomplish what luck has thrown at our feet at last, and now I'm not going to be robbed of the fruits of success because you happen to be more of a beast than a man." Again I warn you, Sven, and he tapped the revolver that swung in its holster at his hip. Malbin gave his friend an ugly look, shrugged his shoulders, and left the tent. Jensen turned to Miriam. If he bothers you again, call me, he said. I shall always be near. The girl had not understood the conversation that had been carried on by her two owners, for it had been in Swedish but what Jensen had just said to her in Arabic she understood, and from it grasped an excellent idea of what had passed between the two. The expressions upon their faces, their gestures, and Jensen's final tapping of his revolver before Malbin had left the tent had all been eloquent of the seriousness of their altercation. Now toward Jensen she looked for friendship, 
and with the innocence of youth she threw herself upon his mercy, begging him to set her free, that she might return to Korak and her jungle life. But she was doomed to another disappointment, for the man only laughed at her roughly, and told her that if she tried to escape she would be punished by the very thing that he had just saved her from. All that night she lay listening for a signal from Korak. All about the jungle life moved through the darkness. To her sensitive ears came sounds that the others in the camp could not hear, sounds that she interpreted as we might interpret the speech of a friend, but not once came a single note that reflected the presence of Korak. But she knew that he would come. Nothing short of death itself could prevent her Korak from returning for her. What delayed him, though? When morning came and the night had brought no succoring Korak, Miriam's faith and loyalty were still unshaken, though misgivings began to assail her as to the safety of her friend. It seemed unbelievable that serious mishap could have overtaken her wonderful Korak, who daily passed unscathed through all the terrors of the jungle. Yet morning came, the morning meal was eaten, the camp broken, and the disreputable safari of the Swedes was on the move northward, with still no sign of the rescue the girl momentarily expected. All that day they marched, and the next and the next, nor did Korak even so much as show himself to the patient little waiter moving silently and stately beside her hard captors. Malbin remained scowling and angry. He replied to Jensen's friendly advances in curt monosyllables. To Miriam he did not speak but on several occasions she discovered him glaring at her from beneath half-closed lids, greedily. The look sent a shudder through her. She hugged Geeka closer to her breast, and doubly regretted the knife that had been taken from her when she was captured by Kovudu. It was on the fourth day that Miriam began definitely to give up hope. Something had happened to Korak. She knew it. He would never come now, and these men would take her far away. Presently they would kill her. She would never see her Korak again. On this day the Swedes rested, for they had marched rapidly, and their men were tired. Malbin and Jensen had gone from camp to hunt, taking different directions. They had been gone about an hour when the door of Miriam's tent was lifted and Malbin entered. The look of a beast was on his face. End of chapter 13